Like I said earlier, without World Vision, it'd be a little bit difficult to get that money to the kids, but thankfully, World Vision helps make that all possible. Um, they've also done something new this year, so the kids can continue to take donations. They've kind of got it set up really handy online, so if you guys want to donate something more or know someone who may, any of these kids can help you out. They can take cash donations, or they can direct you to, direct you to the website, and so they can continue to take those, I think, basically all year even. So it's a pretty neat deal that they got set up there. Um, at the end of church, the kids are going to have a little, they call it plumpy nut. It's the stuff that they feed the really malnourished kids that aren't even hungry anymore. So it's, it's actually kind of good if you like peanut butter. But um, So you can try that at the end of church. And um, is there anything else I forgot? I think that's it. So we're going to show you a real quick slideshow of our weekend, and uh, you guys can go sit down.
got lots of kids this morning. Some of you can sit on the floor down here. Sit on the sit on the stairs right here. You sit right down in here. On the floor. Okay. This is Rocky, and we have to wake him up. So when I count to three, you're going to yell really loud because he's sleeping. You got to wake him up. Say, "Wake up, Rocky!" Can you guys help me do that? Okay. You ready? One, two, three. Wake up, Rocky! Oh, there he is! Oh, Heard you guys calling him, so he came out. Well, today we're going to have a story about a boy named Samuel. And um, this boy, he went to live with a, uh, oh, excuse me. <laughs> oh, they must have hung up. I don't know who it was. Oh, someone was calling me, wasn't they? You know, well, this. That's kind of like something that happened to Samuel today. He, went, he was living with, with Eli, and he heard someone calling him. He was in bed. Let me, let me get the Bible here. Let's see. We'll, we'll read out the Bible. It's a pretty good story. It's in Samuel 3, 1 through 11. Now the boy named Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days, and there was no frequent vision. I don't think so, but could be okay. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so he could not see, was lying down in his own place. <laughs> the lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. So he was in the temple, and he was going to bed. So do you think it was very noisy, or do you think it was all nice and quiet? Nice and quiet, right. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, here I am. He heard, he heard the Lord call his name. And he ran to Eli. He thought it was Eli. And he said, here I am, for you called me. But, he's, but Eli said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went back and lied down, laid down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call you, my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not know the Lord and the name, the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. So he didn't know about the Lord. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. Thank you for asking if he was okay. So Samuel went and lay down in his place, and the Lord came and stood and called as he did other times, Samuel, Samuel, and Samuel said, speak for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel for which the two ears of everyone who hears, it will tingle. So was it Eli calling him? Why who was calling, who was calling him? Why so metal? <laughs> He's trying little so why why was why was um, he keep thinking it was Eli? It wasn't Eli, was it? Who was it? Who was calling Samuel? The Lord God. God was calling Samuel. You know, he heard him really loud and everything. But sometimes we don't hear God, do we? We're like, well, how does he talk to us? So how does God talk to us? Does he call us on the phone? Do you think that was God calling me on the phone? Probably not. You know, God talks to us through the Bible. When we read the Bible, we were hearing God's words. He also talks to us when we're really quiet. So we're going to practice something. You guys going to help me? I want you to close your eyes. Get really quiet. Don't make any noise. And I want you guys to raise your hand if you hear anything. Okay, be real quiet. Raise your hand if you hear something. What do you hear? Okay. What do you hear? You hear people talking. Well, let's see if we can get everyone to stop talking. And they are going to stop talking. This is my teacher. Over here in the back. A tingling? Just a kind of kind of hear a tingling sound. Mm -hmm. What do you hear? 
People's feet moving, yeah. You know, when we get really quiet, do we hear those things when we're making noise? Yeah, when I'm at Mimi's and Papa's and <laughs> <laughs> You know, so to, sometimes we need to get quiet so God can talk to us. He can talk to us inside our head, in our thoughts. He doesn't even have to talk out loud. We can hear him inside, and he can tell us things. So we need to be really quiet sometimes and just sit and talk to God. We can ask him to talk to us. And sometimes he'll give us ideas and things in our heads that come from him. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much that you do give different ways that we can hear. We can hear you through other people that tell us about you. We can hear you through the words in the Bible. We can hear you talk to us directly if we're just quiet and still and really listen. Thank you so much that you help us through the world, that you are there to guide us and help us to listen to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, you guys can go back and sit with your mom. Well, we're going to open up to Exodus chapter 31 today. We're going to cover a whole chapter. Can you believe that? Whole chapter today. I know what you're thinking. We're going to be here till like 3 in the afternoon. <laughs> Hopefully I surprise you. Um, no, the reason we're going to cover the whole chapter of Exodus 31 is it just doesn't, contextually doesn't make sense to just do half of it. Uh, there's kind of two parts to it, but really they fit together. Um, kind of like a left hand and a right hand. They're, they're, they're part of the same discussion, really. And so we're going we're gonna to look at that. Let me uh, just open us in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for, Lord, how you speak to us through your word. Lord, your very words to us. And Lord, how they teach us your ways, how they reveal to us just how wonderful you are, how great you are, how sovereign you are how gracious and kind uh, you are towards us. Lord, we thank you too that uh, your word, um, it, it shows us a better way to live. And um, Lord, by it you give us wisdom and understanding as your spirit teaches us uh, and leads us into all truth. And so we, we ask for your help today as we open your word that you would reveal your truth to us, that we should walk in it, that, the, that our hearts would be in a, uh, a fertile soil to receive the seed of your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, Ephesians chapter 2, 8 through 10, uh, I, you know, I sometimes feel like verse 10 in Ephesians chapter 2 is like uh, uh, the, the, the historic uh, third, third verse of a hymn that gets forgotten, that nobody sings, you know. It's, uh, that, but Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 it says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So God saves us from sin. But verse 10 goes on to say this, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the Lord saved us from something and to something better. And so there are good works for us to do, and those good works are, are spring out of what He saved us, or how He saved us, by, his, by grace, through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so in Jesus Christ, there are now good works for us to do, to share the hope of Jesus Christ with others by our words and actions, and to labor for them in prayer, uh, whether they are uh, fellow believers or, or non-believers that we uh, are ever working to encourage people with the truth of the gospel. And this is, this is the work that we are created for, but there's something even more important than this work. And it's Jesus Himself. In our laboring for Jesus, we must never neglect or forget or misprioritize uh, knowing Him and drawing near to Him. 
And that's the lesson that we're going to learn today as we look at Exodus chapter 31. So let's let's look at that. We're going to start with the first 11 verses here. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahizamach, of the tribe of Dan, and I have given to, uh, to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tent of meeting, and the ark of the testimony, and the mercy seat that is on it, and all the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils, and the pure lampstand and all its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the basin and its stand, and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priests, and the anointing oil, and the fragrant incense for the holy place, according to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. God promised uh, to make his dwelling among his people after he saved them from slavery. And uh, the display that God was going to make his dwelling among his people and be with his people was the tabernacle. That was that, was that the, the everyday reminder that God is with us. God is present here with us. And so God gave uh, the instructions, and as we've been going through Exodus, We've been looking at the, the instructions God gave to Moses about how the tabernacle and the courtyard were to be designed and the materials that they were to be fashioned out of for the place where God would make His presence known among His people. Now, so this was the construction of the tabernacle was a monumental job. Um, it wasn't so much... Uh, it wasn't a monumental job so much because of, of the number of details and the amount of work required to construct it. It was a monumental job because God wanted His people, He commissioned His people to build a place where He would make His presence known among His people. Where He would meet with them, speak to them. And that makes the construction of the tabernacle like the highest priority thing going uh, for the Israelites. Now, it was such an important undertaking here as we read in Exodus 31 in these first few verses that God calls Bezalel and Aholiab to spearhead the project. And look at what it says about uh, how, what God does for Bezalel and Aholiab. It says that he filled them with his spirit so that they would, basically the the summary of it would be so that they would have every possible amount of creativity, understanding, wisdom, and ability that they they would ever need for the task that God had called them to. This is really important. We see an example here, uh, but there's a truth that continues to ring out, and that is this, that's how the Lord works. That is, when He calls His people to a task, He equips His people to carry out to completion what He has called them to do. Um, This is is, uh, something that we should take great confidence in as we think about what God calls us to do um, as as it relates to, to, well, the whole of life. Um, especially as it concerns the sharing of the gospel. I think this is what makes uh, uh, Paul understood this very well. It's why he, as he goes through the book of Philippians and, and, and uh, encouraging the Philippian church all along, and then mentions some of the sufferings he's been through. He talks about what he's called to. He talks about some of the suffering he's been through. And then he says, but I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul understood that what God had called him to God had also equipped him and empowered him to carry out to completion. This is what God does for his people. Look at 2 Peter 1, verse 3. 
His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. What is lacking in this calling that we have in Christ? Nothing. Nothing is lacking. God has equipped us with everything that we need. Look at John chapter 14. Uh, Turn there with me if you would. John chapter 14. Verse 12. Something pretty profound and amazing that, that Jesus is teaching to his disciples here. John 14, verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Wow. Whoever believes in Jesus will do the works that he does. Hold on a minute. And greater works than these will he do. Greater works than Jesus did? That's what Jesus said. Jesus said those who believe in him will do the works that he does and then do greater works than he did. Because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. All right, let's keep going there. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. All right, okay, so Jesus says, if you believe in me, you're going to do the works that I do. And you're going to do greater works than I do because I'm leaving. Wait a minute, what? And I'm sending you a helper. All right, well, who is this helper? The Spirit of truth. Well, skip on down there to verse 25. These things I've spoken to you while I am still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Alright, so here's what Jesus is saying. I'm going to leave. You're going to do the works that I've done and even greater works than these because I'm giving you, leaving you with, sending you the Helper, the Holy Spirit who's going to equip you with everything you need to accomplish that. Jesus sets the bar pretty high for the work that's to be done. He says, you're going to do the works that I've done and then greater than that, but then He equips them with every possible thing they could ever need to carry that out, and that is the Spirit of God. All wisdom, all knowledge, all ability that God has is made available to those whom God has called to carry out His works. There's a picture of of this that I... I love that uh, to me just puts an exclamation point on this this truth. It's in Luke chapter nine, and uh, it's it's probably titled "The Feeding of the Five Thousand in your in your uh, in your scripture there in your Bible. But uh, it says, "On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida." When the crowds learned it, that is, that uh, Jesus had gone to Bethsaida, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. They're like... uh, you know, find themselves even further out than Harrison, you know, that place that hardly anybody can get to. Uh, They're out in the boonies. They follow Jesus out into the boonies. There's no place to get food. Uh, And so the disciples, um, they're they're keen to what's going on here, and they just say, Jesus, we need to send these people away, or, or, you know, it's a a long hike back to where they came from. Um, And and so... uh, Jesus says to them, you give them something to eat. 
Jesus called his disciples to feed. When we say the feeding of the 5,000, if you, if you really read the text a little closer, what you understand is that's a way underestimate for the number of people that they were actually called to feed because it's the feeding of 5,000 men and anybody that came along with them. You know, wives, children, um, that's a lot of people. And, and the disciples said, send them away so that they can get something to eat. They're not going to go hungry. And he said, well, you give them something to eat. I mean, what do you do with that? Uh, that's, that's an impossible task that Jesus just asked his disciples to do or commanded his disciples to do. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we're to go and buy food for all these people. Um, but here's the thing, if we read, read some of the other Gospels, the five loaves and two fish, they, that, that, that actually came from a boy nearby. I'm not sure how the boy felt about it at the time. Later on, he probably had no regrets whatsoever. But um, So five loaves and, and two fish. And then there was also a comment made that, hey, even if we worked for a year, we could not afford, even if there was a place to buy the food, which there isn't, Jesus, we could work for a year and still not afford to feed all these people. So they had two issues. One, they couldn't afford the food. And two, there's no food to buy even if they could. And they have five loaves and two fish. For there were about 5,000 men, and he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and had them to all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd, and they all ate and were satisfied. Now, this is not the kind of, this is not satisfied like, eh, I think I could stop eating now. This is like Thanksgiving satisfied. This is like, no, I can't. Like, thanks, Grandma, for offering me a fourth piece of pie, but like, I'm going to get sick if I eat that. This is satisfied like, no, nothing more, please. Um, so they all ate and were satisfied, and what was left over was picked up 12 baskets full of leftovers. So they started with way less than a basket full of food. Jesus made that feed 5,000 men and families. And then they collected leftovers and they had 12 baskets full of leftovers. Jesus called His disciples to do something that they could not do. It was a physical impossibility for them to, 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 to feed those people. And there's a boy... That, that Andrew says, hey, uh, we've, got some, we've got a little bit of food here. Uh, there's a boy here with some food. And they bring that to Jesus. It seems like such a pitiful offering. Um, you know, the whole church gets together for a potluck and one person brings like three deviled eggs. Right? Uh, we look around, what, what are we going to eat? Jesus, there's five loaves and two fish here. And Jesus makes it more than enough. Totally satisfied. Everybody ate all they wanted and there was leftovers. This is how God works. He will call us to do things that He did and even greater than that, things that are impossible for us to do, but then equips us through the Spirit of God to carry out the task to fulfillment. Jesus told the disciples to feed the multitude, but really it was Jesus who did the feeding. He just wanted His disciples to be available, surrendered to Him, committed to accomplishing the task that He had called them to. So as God called uh, Bezalel and Aholiab here in Exodus to a gigantic undertaking, he also equipped them with the power of the Holy Spirit and every possible resource that they would need to complete the task that they were called to do. There's work that God calls us to do, but work, even for the sake of Christ, is not all that there is for us. It's not even the most important thing for us. Let's look at... Uh, Exodus chapter 31, starting verse 12. 
And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days you shall, shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And he gave Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. While the Lord instructed his people, uh, led by Bezalel and Aholiab, to construct the tabernacle where God would make his dwelling known among his people, um, he commanded them always to keep his Sabbaths. So the work of constructing the, ta- the, the tabernacle was the biggest project in Israel. Among the Israelites, there was, there was not any more important job being undertaken than, than uh, building the place where God would live with them. But, he said, even in that work, you are to always keep the Sabbaths. As important as that work is, always keep the Sabbaths. Look at verse 13 again. Um, as he says, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. Have you ever gotten so busy with the Lord's work that you neglected the Lord Himself? Um, have you been so wrapped up in doing good that you didn't make time for the One who called and equipped you for good works? Ephesians 2.10 Some, uh, you know, some say the Sabbath is about, is about rest, a day of rest. And, and to be sure, that's certainly a component of the Sabbath that, that, that we find. In fact, in verse 15, it says, Six days you shall, shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. But the Sabbath is about so much more than rest. So much more than rest. Now there's a principle there that there is work to be done and then just physically God has made us in such a way that we need rest. we got to rest once in a while. I mean, you, you, you can go really hard for a while, but at some point you have to rest or you crash and burn. So there is a cycle that, that exists in the way God made us, the way God made creation uh, of work and rest. But there's something so much more to the Sabbath than just rest. Look at verse 13 again. Above all, you are to keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. He didn't say, uh, above all, you keep the Sabbaths because if you don't, you'll never be able to finish this project in time. Or you're going to get really, you're going to get less and less productive as you go along if you don't take your Sabbath. That's not what he says. He says the Sabbath is a sign between me and you. Look at verse 17. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. The Sabbath was a sign to the people, a marker of remembrance in the routines of daily life and uh, and the the laboring of of their daily work. The Sabbath brought them back to a refreshing remembrance of the Lord who saved them and called them and equipped them to do His work. 
The Sabbath brought them back to the beginning. See that? Verse, in verse 17 there where he says, it's a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days that the Lord made the heaven and the earth and on the seventh day He rested. It's a remembrance that it is the Lord who saved them, but it is also the Lord who created the heavens and the earth. So the Sabbath then brings them back to the, the foundations of their faith in Him. The Lord who saved them is also the one who made everything. So to not keep the Sabbath then, you see these. there's some pretty harsh uh, um, uh, consequences for those who don't keep the Sabbath in this passage here. And so be, that's because to not keep the Sabbath was an act of rebellion and rejection of the Lord Himself. It was a rejection of, of His remembrance and the honor due His name. So imagine, you know, Mother's Day is coming up. Imagine now, um, I understand that you, it's possible to maybe forget Mother's Day. I don't encourage that. But if you just outright reject honoring or remembering your mother uh, out of spite or rebellion, that, that, that is a, a really ugly and, and evil thing. This is like, so for the people here, this is what God is speaking to. It's not like people woke up and on Sunday they went out and mowed the lawn or something and then he's like, ah, caught you. Oh, I forgot. It's the Sabbath. No, this is people actively knowing what they're doing in violating the, the keeping of the Sabbath. It was an act of rebellion against God that says, I don't acknowledge you as my creator and I don't acknowledge you as my savior. I'm not thankful for what you have done and I'm not trusting you in the days ahead. That is why it was such a severe thing for them to violate the keeping of the Sabbath. So how do we keep the Sabbath? Or do we? Like, uh, did the Sabbath end when Christ came? Well, when pressed about... uh, about his disciples seeming to violate the regulations of the Sabbath, Jesus proclaimed that he is Lord of the Sabbath. Let's look at Matthew chapter 12. Cool, we got it up here. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. Work being done. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Your disciples are not keeping the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? He didn't just like pick grain out in the field. He went right into the temple and ate the bread that was reserved for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? What does he mean there? Well, it means that there, was, <clears throat> there were actually some uh, um, loopholes where in the keeping of the Sabbath there were some people who were actually kind of allowed not to keep the Sabbath because there was such important work being done in the, in the temple that they were allowed to work, if you will. The work of God was still being done on the Sabbath. So, have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? Now they're working. And it's a Sabbath. That you, you, you do not aware of this? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. I, ho- I hope you catch this. Uh, So here's what Jesus says. Well, we'll finish out here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. All right, so Jesus says He's greater than the Sabbath, and then He kind of elevates it even from there. Because He says, I'm greater than the Sabbath. I am Lord of the Sabbath. And He says, but you know, there are priests that are uh, working in the temple that they're kind of a, in, in, above the Sabbath in a, in a way because they're doing the work of God. 
And guess what? I'm greater than that. So I'm greater than the Sabbath and I'm greater than the work being done on the Sabbath by people approved to do that work. I'm greater than all of that. He is Lord of the Sabbath. Now when he says I'm Lord of the Sabbath, he's not saying I'm the best Sabbath keeper there is. I rule the Sabbath. He's not, he's not approaching it that way. He's saying he owns the Sabbath. It's about him. It finds its purpose in him. That's a pretty remarkable statement that Jesus makes. So what does it mean that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath? Well, the first thing it means is that Jesus Himself is of greater importance than the Sabbath regulations. And more important than days, and more important than times, and more important than seasons. And to worship Jesus and follow Him is to honor the Sabbath and all the other commands. Second thing is this. It means that Jesus is the One who created the heavens and the earth and the one who came to save his people. See there in Exodus chapter 31, what the Sabbath was geared to do? It was geared to cause the people to remember the God who saved them and to remember the one who was there at the foundation of creation, who laid the foundations of creation by his spoken word. In six days he created and on the seventh he rested. And on that basis, God is sovereign over all things and He has rescued His people. And when Jesus claims to be Lord of the Sabbath, He is also saying, I am Lord of all creation and I am the Savior of all mankind. Wow. You didn't see that in your English there, did you? But when you put it in the full context of what Jesus is speaking to those who would understand what the Sabbath or should understand what the Sabbath is about, Jesus proclaims Himself to be the One who created the heavens and the earth and the One who came to save them. Look at Colossians chapter 1, 15, verse 15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent, for in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Both things there in Colossians. He is creator of all things and He is Savior of mankind. God saved His people out of Egypt, which is the picture of God, really a foreshadowing of what was to come in sending Christ to save people out of slavery to sin and death. He also, the Sabbath brings a remembrance that the God who saved them is the One who created all things and Jesus is both of those. Bringing peace by the blood of His cross. Look at John chapter 1, verse 3. The Apostle John understood all these things very clearly as well. He says, All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. When we talk about, when we look at Genesis chapter 1 and we start talking about God creating the heavens and the earth, our Savior is there participating in creation. The call to Sabbath, though, still exists for believers in Jesus Christ. But it's no longer a day. It's no longer a time. It's no longer a season. It's a person. Jesus Christ. I, I, uh, uh, had sent, uh, um, I was reading some commentary this week and I sent a, uh, the commentary. The commentator was making the argument about which was greater, the temple or the tabernacle or, uh, or the Sabbath. Which of those two was greater? And I, I had uh, sent the quote over to, to Matt. And I said, what do you think about this, Matt? And he says, well, he, he sent a lot of stuff. He, he didn't just send a one-liner to me. He sent a lot of really great stuff. Uh, but, um, but 
in there, he said, well, which is, he, he pulled this like rabbi thing on me. And he turns it into a question for me. He says, which is greater? Um, which is more important, that we meet here Sunday at 10 a.m. to worship God or that we meet in this building to worship God? Like, which is greater, the time or the place? Well, uh, the question is, uh, has an obvious answer. Neither. The most important thing is that we worship Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's the important thing. The time, the place, pick a time, pick a place, any day, any time, that's when you worship the Lord Jesus. The call to Sabbath exists for us, but it's in a person, not a place. And it's today, because today is the day we have to believe in Him and trust in Him and rely on Him and worship Him. So Christians, you know, still squabble over um, about the Sabbath. What day is it? Is it Saturday? Is it Sunday? Do we, do we take the Sabbath at home, at church, or someplace else? But to ask these questions is to miss the mark altogether. Jesus is calling us to Sabbath in Him. Look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The Sabbath, for as important and and profound and, and fixed as the Sabbath was in the life of God's people, he says here in Exodus chapter 31, all, uh, uh, above all, you shall keep my Sabbath. As important as it was, it was only a shadow of something greater to come. The substance of the Sabbath belongs to Christ. He is Lord of the Sabbath. The whole substance and purpose of the Sabbath is found in Jesus Christ. Look at Hebrews chapter uh, 3. We are kind of uh, we are on the tail end of this. If you were wondering if this was going till three 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 or three thirty here, so Hebrews chapter three, verse seven. There's kind of a, a larger passage here that we're going to read together because uh, I think it's just important for us to understand here as we're talking about work and Sabbath, and because it. Uh, also places this conversation in the context of uh, Exodus as well. Therefore, verse 7 of chapter 3, as the Holy Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray, In their heart, they have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Who who is being referred to here is the generation of folks that we're encountering in Exodus right now. That generation of folks saw the works of God and denied uh, denied the the worship and honoring of God. And how did they deny Him? How did they disobey Him? Verse ten says they always go astray in their heart. It's important. Okay, so they were not permitted to enter the rest because of what was going on in their heart. Verse 12, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Again, watch the heart. Careful, brothers, so that you don't have an unbelieving heart. Verse 13, But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all of those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom He was provoked for forty years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? 
And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. In other words, God told them he was taking them to a, to a promised land after he saved them out of Egypt. But because of their unbelief in him, he let that generation die, wander around and die in the desert as a consequence to their unbelief in him, that they refused to trust him in spite of all that God had shown them and done for them. And so the, the, the next generation led by Joshua were the ones who entered then into the promised land. And so that's what's being talked about here, that they were excluded from entering into that because of their disobedience. And what was their disobedience? Unbelief. Chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day. What day? Today. Saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. There is a still a Sabbath rest for God's people. So let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. What is the same sort of disobedience? Unbelief. That our heart is far from him. That we don't trust him. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of, and of spirit and of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You see this theme keep coming up over and over, even in the discussion here of God's Sabbath rest for His people. It's the heart that keeps coming up over and over. He doesn't even talk about what day of the week here. He doesn't talk about the time and place. He talks about the condition of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom, to whom we must give account. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We talk about what is, what is the Sabbath, what's the right way to honor the Sabbath. Well, today is the day we Sabbath. And Jesus Christ is the one in whom we Sabbath. Verse 16 there says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We, it is through Christ that we receive forgiveness of sin. Rest from our guilt. Rest from our shame. Rest from our laboring to be good enough for God. Rest from the weariness and hopelessness of our soul. So let us then with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace. That's what the Sabbath is all about, remembering and drawing near to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the One who created us, the One who saved us. In all your working for God, do you make time to remember Him and draw near to Him? I think of Mary and Martha in Luke chapter 10. Martha hard at work for God. Just she, she wasn't doing bad stuff. Jesus didn't chastise her for doing wrong things. Just having a wrong priority. That 
that being with him, knowing him, drawing near to him was of more value than doing for him. That's why Jesus says, have you not heard? I desire mercy, not sacrifice. To know God and draw near to him is of greater value than doing stuff for him. You know, Jesus said that there are going to be people that come before him someday and they're going to say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this in your name? Didn't we do that in your name? Didn't we do all sorts of wonderful things in your name? And he's going to say, depart from me. I don't have a clue who you are. People who have not trusted him and embraced him as their Savior and Lord who went around doing a lot of good stuff, but in their heart were far from him. You know, this is something that even Jesus modeled for us. Jesus came to do the will of his Father. He reminded everyone of that often, that he was only here to do the work of his Father that he was sent to do. And yet, look at Luke chapter 6, verse 12. In these days, days where Jesus is going around and he's doing miracles and he's teaching and all kinds of things, in these days he went out to the mountain to pray and all night he continued in prayer to God. Jesus made time. We'll say things like, I didn't have time for that, right? I didn't, I didn't have time really to, you know, to read scriptures or spend time talking with the Lord today. You know what the Sabbath command was? It wasn't, hey, try to carve out a little time sometime during the week to remember God. It was make time. You, people of God, make time for him. God doesn't squeeze into your life wherever you have gaps. He is to be the all-consuming thing that fuels your life. To know Him is of greater value than to do stuff for Him. So if we're so busy doing His work that we don't make time to remember Him, we are totally missing the boat. My question to you is... uh, or my, I guess my encouragement to you is to consider your life. Consider, does God, uh, is God privy to the sort of the leftovers of your time and your resource and your energy and your focus? Um, or do you make time that your doing is never disconnected from your knowing Him and being in Him? Your doing finds its power and purpose in Him. Jesus is the substance of the Sabbath. He's the substance of all of your good works. Now, um, I still encourage you to take a day. But the point isn't the day, and the point isn't the place. The point is the person. Never, ever, ever. Above all, says in Exodus, remember your Lord Jesus Christ, who is your Sabbath rest, people of God. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Sabbath rest that we find in you. Rest from our toil and sin. Rest from, Lord, the weariness of our soul, the guilt and the shame that we carry around as a result of our sin. Lord, we thank you for you are the one who empowers us and equips us to do your work. Lord, let us never be so focused on the work, Lord, that we are removed from the one who called us and equipped us to do it. Lord, let the, let the work our hands do and the, the words our mouth speak always be directly connected to you, the one who has called and empowered us to do it. Lord, let you receive all glory and honor and praise. Lord, when we pass from this earth, let no one say, man, Todd was great. What a great guy. But let them say that they saw you because of me. That what I did just enabled them to draw near to you and be saved by you to know your greatness. Lord, let each one of us live in such a way that, Lord, we, uh, we, we, we are just arrows pointing to you. Lord, we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.